have thought it best to send the Night Watchman out. The crowd want to cheer Ricky Park. Welcome to the Night Watchman podcast. I'm John Hotton. Twitter began in 2006. By 2007, it was hosting 400,000 tweets per quarter. A year later, that was 100 million. A year after that, it was 50 million per day. And sometimes, if Tendulkar was batting, perhaps a million or so of those were about cricket. Twitter, Instagram, the over by over news report, and below the line comment offered new avenues for immediacy, but posed the question how do you report on a game that the audience has been discussing in real time? In an arena where an hour sometimes feels like a year, what kind of long-form writing can prosper? Vithushan Ihantharaja is one of the most distinctive and original voices of this new and uncertain era, as lethal with 140 characters or a David Brent meme as he can be contemplative and readable over several thousand words. He's found his way from multifarious freelance gigs to the independent, where he's one of their leading sports writers. Vish, I wanted to start by asking, is there such a thing as traditional news anymore? When something happens, do you reach for your phone to your to your editor or go straight onto Twitter? Oh, God, that's a good question. Um, <laughs> I mean, I think there is. I think we over the last few days we've seen with the um, the way the Ch- Channel 4's acquisition of the TV rights for India, England, the way that's played out, I think it's been a bit of both, hasn't it? I think it's been a lot of discussion yeah. over Twitter and a lot of breaking news over Twitter and then, you know, doing it the old-fashioned way, as it were, which is <laughs> as old-fashioned as picking up the phone and calling someone. <laughs> 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 but um yeah I, I, I do yeah. um yeah i do think there's definitely um you know i do think those things have carried on i suppose they've just adapted to the the different mediums and, and forms we have now i mean twitter's it, it, i was thinking about this uh, uh today as i was i was preparing to talk to you and it only started in 2006. That's after the 2005 Ashes. And yet it seems to have been here for far longer. And it just has, you know, it's not only transformed what we, you know, how we report the game, but it's transformed what we say about the game as well. It's kind of very irreverence has led to a new way of talking about cricket. Yeah, definitely. Well, it's funny, I feel like I should be interviewing you for this, but, you know, you're... Don't I remember, do that. I'm, I'm going to put I'm going to put you on the spot here because <laughs> I remember um, when I when I thought I wanted to get into writing, I started um, I started a blog on Blogspot. Yeah, 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 yeah. And um, I put one of my one of my interests was cricket, and one of my recommended blogs to follow was yours. I will. Thank you very much. So that was that was the first time I came across your work actually. So yeah. it was you and Jared who kind of who sent me on this course really. So thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. But. But I suppose one one of the things why I brought that up is that kind of you're someone who writes analytically and irreverently about about cricket, and, and cricket has had a long history of doing that, of um, I suppose of not being taken too seriously. Uh, and while that things like that might have been over the course of a thousand words, I think now that you know we have 140 characters and then 280 characters to do that, it's maybe it's not so surprising that it's you know, flowed into this kind of instant reaction, instant gratification medium quite well, I think. I th- you know, you look at the the cricket Twitter community, as it were, and it's, you know, it's thriving with a, a range of different voices from very different backgrounds who see cricket in very different ways. And, yeah, it's it's hard to think that the sport's richer for it. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? And, the, 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 you know, probably throughout 
the, the previous generation, the 90s or whatever, and as cricket began to slip behind paywalls on television, we were told that, the you know, no one knows who the players are. They're kind of characterless and they've come, for, you know, come out of the 80s when you had Viv Richards and Dennis Lilly and these kind of guys, you know, that were very recognisable to everybody into an era where people weren't. But Twitter in many ways has offered that opportunity for for players to become characters. I suppose I'm thinking of Peterson initially, but but Chris Gale, Stuart Broad, you know, these guys, it's not their actual real life persona, but it is a persona that the public can recognise and that in many ways you can go and write about. Yeah, I suppose so, actually. I reckon it probably does more for the fan than it does for the journalist. You know, you, you'll still get people, you know, tweeting sports stars saying, by the way, it's my it's my birthday or my son's birthday. It'd be great to get, get a shout <laughs> yeah, out. And, and yeah. it's, you know, as, as twee as that may be, certainly some people do get a kick out of it. And, you know, it's, I suppose that makes them feel a bit closer to it than, than ever before. Um. I was trying to think. I remember Jared Kimber wrote a piece about this, didn't he? Where he he said that he reckoned the first bit of news to break over Twitter was Phil Hughes in the two thousand nine Ashes. I think he, um, he Phil Hughes tweeted that he was missing the. Missing he the did, test. yeah, he did, yeah, yeah. Um, That's right. And largely beyond that, I don't know how much actual news. Or, or rather, from a journalist's point of view, how much actual information you get from there. I know every. Well, I say that actually, but Instagram's quite a good way of seeing where a cricketer is in the world because, you know, <laughs> right. there's so many T20 leagues and things like that that they might post on an Instagram story that they're in this part of the world. And, oh, and more often than not, it's Dubai. But it might mean they're going to somewhere, yeah. coming from yeah. somewhere. Um, but, yeah, the, the personality thing, I think it's... Um, it, I wonder if it's helped the, you know, the players who are ne- who you wouldn't necessarily... Declare as, as a top tier cricketer. I'm, I'm thinking of Jimmy Neesham here, for example. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. Who, or um, Harry Gurney. Yeah, Harry Gurney. Um, yeah. Who are clearly just very funny, interesting people who come to a certain level of online prominence that maybe their cricket wouldn't necessitate. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Although someone like Chris Gale is is fascinating to me as well because the the you know the universe boss, this kind of persona that he created and curated essentially in pictures and emojis, you know, the universe boss doesn't ever say anything. He's just in a picture or he's, you know, sending, putting some emojis of champagne bottles or something. (laughs) This, This is how he exists. And it was all great fun and then it kind of came crashing down when he did the pitch side interview in the big bash and you know was effectively in a way cancelled um and has kind of had to make his way back from that i mean there's a sort of cautionary tale there isn't there well it's funny you say that because because i look at it from from a different angle i i think without the universe boss persona and without building up that fan base that he's probably he probably ends up more burned from the Mel McLaughlin interview than he actually was. Right. Because the one thing I noticed during that episode was how many supporters he had, how many people would kind of blindly, you know, jump to, jump to his defence. And, and, you know, and, and, the, and the worst part of that was that just led to more abuse to, towards Mel McLaughlin. Yeah. But I thought, I thought he, um, 
I thought because of how he'd harnessed it up until that point, you know, because he was world boss first, and then he was universe boss, and then you know, <laughs> he was he almost yeah. kind of Justin Bieber himself, didn't he? He was. Just... Well, I think he did. He did. I mean, I never knew if the were if someone sort of craftily trademarked world boss or something, so he took it up a notch because he couldn't use world boss anymore. <laughs> it just happened overnight one day. Yeah, it was an extraordinary thing, really. I was going to say because it's become part of his pulling power. Really, it's the reason yeah. why whenever there's a single startup t20 league or the hundred that they want him he's their one player that they want it's rashid khan for performance and chris gale for marketing yeah yeah very much so yeah but i mean i suppose what he's you know and and has he's is he's experienced and all of us probably with social media now and it, it, have become aware of its power um and do you find yourself thinking twice before you use it now, thinking twice before you tweet that joke or that kind of offhand comment? Um, I suppose invariably I would, given how you know how things have gone on social media over the last few years. I wouldn't say I recognise it in the moment of tweeting it, but but certainly my I, I think my <laughs> my thought process would already kind of cut out certain things that I, maybe I would have tweeted about a few years ago, but I'm worried about them being misconstrued. Although in saying that, I tweeted something the other day, actually, which I thought was quite funny. Not the other day, maybe about maybe the end of last year. And I, and I deleted it because one of the players in question got in touch with me and and, and didn't get the joke, basically. And I, really? Yeah, and I, I didn't okay. think... That's interesting. And I had quite a civil call. It was someone I know relatively well. And so I was able to have a bit of back and forth with them. Um, but the, the, the thing that he had, um, he had an issue with was that it wasn't necessarily the tweet itself, but it was what it invited after that. Cause you can, you can put a joke out there, you can put a statement out there and you know, you, you can rest in the glow of all those retweets and likes, but ultimately you then yeah. hand it over to someone else, don't you? Who then riffs off the back of it and then can take it too far. Um, yeah. And it's not, and it's not yeah. something that yeah. I, you know. I, I can sit here and say that, oh, you know, that's that's not my fault. And I, to be fair, I think I did say that to him, mm. but but at the same time, I think um, <laughs> you know, I, I wouldn't necessarily say I have uh, to use a word that to well, clout is the word that people talk about. I don't, I don't think I have clout when it comes to cricket or social media or or both. But I think you know, I've got twenty five thousand followers now, and I appreciate that not all of them would a get a joke or get a reference that I was um, putting out there, but also would, you know, it's not uh, trust is the wrong word, but I I can understand why maybe one of them or maybe hundreds of them would have taken something to criticize someone and, and use it to then take that criticism a bit further. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's interesting that there's, as you mentioned, this sort of semi-formal way of communicating with players now as a a writer and as a journalist in that you can drop them a a DM or a a line over Instagram or something as well as, you know, the the sort of formal settings for interviews that are are established. Um, Has that that changed the way you work? Um, I think so, because... I feel like it's changed changed what I've written in terms of the information you garner is now not just solely from interviews. Like I remember a few pieces I wrote during the uh, well, I, I suppose you know, John, you, you'll you'll know exactly what I'm talking about here. You end up having loads of conversations in cricket with cricket people that aren't 
you know, those nuggets aren't necessarily outright uh, something to write a piece off, but slowly you amass so many different nuggets that you're like, oh, hold on, there's actually like a collection of things here. You look into that, you open that drawer in your mind, you're like, oh God, there's there's a piece here about, you know, spin or opening the batting or, or something and something else. Yeah, um, yeah. And often I, I found, well, I suppose I've realised the last couple of years that what you're saving for is those big moments, aren't you? You're saving it for a World Cup, you're saving it for an Ashes series, you're saving it for the moments that matter when you do actually need to go big on something. For example, yeah, yeah. Um, or, yeah, or sometimes you're just saving it for an intro because you haven't got one. So, um, <laughs> I, and I think I've, I've found that over social media and Instagram, and therefore having, you know, maybe this this happened before, but certainly you know over WhatsApp, which is a bit more, which seems to be a bit more casual than just straight like messaging someone. You know, it feels a bit more. I, I don't know what it is about WhatsApp, but it feels like that barrier's a lot a lot easier to get through. It does. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. Yeah. I made the mistake uh, last year in setting up an interview of texting a cricketer and uh, Phil Walker at Wisden had to very gently explain to me that no one texts each other (laughs) ever anymore. It has to be WhatsApp. And sure enough, I sent a WhatsApp and the person responded like that second to, to my to my instant WhatsApp, you know. So it's just those kind of little changes that I suppose you have to be aware of. Yeah, yeah, that that's interesting because um, you know you, you've painted Phil there as this kind of <laughs> as this man of the modern world. I said that's anything but, but, but yeah, yeah, no, it's, yeah. Um, that's interesting actually. Yeah, I I, I just kind of I think because I, I mean I was going to say I'm young, but I'm not really. I'm going to be 35 in a couple of weeks. But yeah, that's young. Yeah. <laughs> but um, you know, I, I converse with all my friends on on WhatsApp, and yeah, that's just become the way I've. The way I talk to people, and I think um, even you know, while during the pandemic, um, I reckon I've done more interviews over Zoom that could have been that, or rather, that would have been phone conversations in the past. Um, so that's uh, yeah. I, I suppose even even the way even talking over the phone has has evolved. Evolved probably not the right word, but it, it's changed certainly because of the circumstances of that we're living in at the moment. Yeah, yeah. I suppose the the the, the crucial question for a writer uh, is how do you uh, allow you know how how does this inform your your I was going to say your proper writing your long form writing um, when you have to go away and as you did the other day write you know two couple of thousand words on spin or an England spinners or you know something that has nuance and texture and all of those have do you find that um, that you're in a completely different mindset when you're writing in that way? Uh, yes and no. Um, and, and probably more no in terms of a different mindset because t- to talk about that spin piece as an example, that was off the back of so many different chats that I've had on social media about spin and coming to a realisation yeah. that actually I, I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> and there was such a huge blind spot there and... Um, yeah, like, you know, how many times do we, um, do we see comments about, you know, but a bowler's, a spin bowler's consistency, not pitching it in the right areas. And, and, you know, I, I'm someone who's, who's taken part in those conversations and also contributed to them. And I, and I thought, you know, I feel like I'm re- reading from a, a hymn, sheet, hymn sheet here where I'm talking about, you know, very specific things and I might find new ways to talk about them, but I don't really know what they mean. <laughs> you know, I don't know the mechanics yeah. behind a lot yeah. of things that, I, that I'm that i giving of reasons that 
Don Best might not do well in India and that Virat Kohli might take Jack Leach to the cleaners. Um, yeah. <laughs> and so because I kept having those conversations on Twitter, because where else would I keep having those conversations, really? That ended yeah, up fueling yeah. this piece. Um, and I thought, well, actually, why don't, why don't I just look into it instead of, you know, sitting here scratching my chin? Um, and and <laughs> yeah, a lot of, uh, yeah. and I suppose because of the way cricketers are at the moment, you know, I, I wrote a, a Joffre Archer's Twitter account has, has brought many people, many, you know, many people much joy, but I wrote a piece yeah. about it during the 2019 World Cup because I, I noticed, I think, a, you know, the way he was when he was younger, um, just cycling through his, his Twitter feed and, you know, the phenomenon of that is black Twitter and how it emboldens loads of um, black kids who are specifically, well, mostly in the US, but also over here um, in terms of how they've been able yeah. to, you know, speak with their own slang and, and not feel the, um, or actually feel to be able to feel so comfortable in such a public forum. I think that's when, when they, they wouldn't necessarily feel as comfortable in public life. I thought that was, that was something to look into. And then that's obviously totally social media. Um, But it's, uh, yeah. So I don't think it, maybe actually when it comes to how a piece might be criticized, you, you might end up throwing in a couple of caveats in your, in your longer form work because you're already anticipating yeah. the, you know, <laughs> the, the Twitter yeah, reaction. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And, and perhaps that's not particularly helpful, but I think by and large, maybe it's, um, yeah, I wouldn't say it's affected me in a negative way per se. Yeah. I mean, you're somebody who, as you mentioned, started out with a blog and then did you know, numerous of those mad freelance gigs, yeah. uh, you know, all of, all of the, and you know, now you're at the independent. You also have the, the other thing going on in your background of uh, a Sri Lankan family. Uh, and so I wonder if you feel connected at all to any part of the tradition of cricket writing what we would think of as the canon you know do you ever go back to that did that mean anything to you when you were starting out as a cricket writer you know what um in a in a really ignorant way no no it didn't um to the extent that i i do have a lot of blind spots you know i've um I'm staring at a book here, Australia 55 by Alan Ross, which, um, which Lawrence Booth pressed in your hands did he? Yeah. Yeah. So he, he recommended me that book and he was like, I, th- you, I think you'd really enjoy this. Um, and cause you know, one of the, one of the issues with that is that there've been so many great cricket writers, you know, bringing out so many books that it's hard to know where to start. So he he recommended me that actually, and I I still haven't broken into it, but I, I, mean, I, I do. I, but but that that is something I, I want to crack into um, very soon. But yeah, I always had a bit of a blind spot with that kind of stuff. But then at the same time, I think I would have certainly my mindset when I came in at the time. I just I'd left uni, didn't really know what to do my, with myself, and I think if I had really delved into it, it probably would have put me off. I, I probably, I definitely didn't have any remote kind of confidence coming into the industry that I was going to be any good. It was just something I enjoyed yeah. doing and I enjoyed writing. Um, and like, I'm not just saying this because you're here, but you and Jared were too, you know, because you wrote about it in a very different way and you did, you weren't necessarily governed by the, Joe yeah, Root said yeah. this in his press yeah, conference, yeah, you know. Yeah. Um, Alistair Cook said this in his press conference, um, and and particularly Jared, of course, because you know Jared is 
I, I think, I don't know if they're still available on the internet. They might have been taken down, actually, by the authorities. <laughs> but Jared's, Jared's early writing oh, was, it was phenomenal I, I, yeah. because it was absurd. Exactly. It, yeah. like it was, uh, you're absolutely right. Yeah. I remember the first thing I ever read of his was about the uh, Pakistan Super League, which people don't even remember anymore. You know, it was this kind of uh, started up in, uh, you know, oh, sort of slight opposition to the first IPL. And it, was, it had all these mad teams in it. You know, it didn't last for very long. And uh, and he was writing about that every day and these great jokes, but the blogs would be, you know, I don't know, just two paragraphs or something. But there'd be 10 a day on this madness, you know. And you just yeah. thought, my God, you, you, exactly what you were saying. You do not have to be beholden to what we think of as tradition in cricket, you know, which uh, for all the kind of beautiful prose it's produced and, uh, you know, the, the kind of the, the tradition that it's created – it, it, there's really no point sticking to it in the modern age. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I remember um, one of the best bits of advice I, I got given. Um, it was my first week of work experience at the cricketer. <laughs> right. And um, Dan Brigham was the uh, deputy editor. They, they, they had an incredible... I mean, they're doing a lot of good work now, but they had an incredible team yeah. at the time. You had John Stern up top. Um, you had Ed Craig. I'm yeah, not sure you remember oh, him. Absolutely. You're probably still in yeah, touch yeah. with him, yeah. Um, Dan Brigham, uh, Benji as well. Um, you know, Alan Tyres would would rock in and out of the office every <laughs> yeah, now and again. Yeah. Uh, Sam Collins, uh, you know, famously of Death yeah. of a Gentleman, was the online editor, the first online editor I can yeah, remember. Actually, that is actually yeah, cricket yeah. magazine related. Um, but I, I sent, um, I think I wrote a piece and, and sent it through to Dan Brigham, and he sent me a one line reply saying, "Why are you trying? Why are you trying to write like Shield Berry?" <laughs> really. Okay, and I was basically I was just trying to do an impression of a cricket yeah. writer. That was what I thought cricket writing yeah. was. You know, you write flowery prose every now and again. You write click thesaurus <laughs> and you chuck in one of the words from there. But um, but yeah, he was just like you know, just why don't you just write like you? You know, we've seen some of your stuff that we, that's why we got you in for a work experience. Don't try and don't try and be someone you're not. There's there is already a shield berry and he'll be around for a very yeah. long time. I didn't realize I'd end up going on tour with that shield, <laughs> same shield berry, but. Um, <laughs> But but it's true, isn't it? I think it's um, you know people uh, people keep asking me for advice on being a cricket writer, and I you know I'd, I'd love to help uh, um, where I can. And it feels really, I don't know, it, it feels a bit like a cop out when you say, oh, you know, just be yourself. But I, I think that's the main, the most important thing because you know there are already plenty of other people to write about. If you can offer, all you can offer is your person, all you can offer is your personality to be, to look at the game in a different way or, or just tell it how you see it and, and people will respond to that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, it, it's so interesting that you said the first thing you, you know, you tried to write, you tried to write like a cricket writer and uh, it, that kind of just perpetuates what's gone before, doesn't it? Which, uh, you know, it really, people don't, it, it it, it's such a different language now. You know, language is so dynamic that um, you really don't want that kind of, uh, as you say, oh, it was 24 for three and uh, you know, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, so I was going to throw this back at you, actually. Do you feel that you're a better cricket writer for writing about other things? You know, I'm reading your boxing book at the moment, for example, and you've, you know, you've, you've written a book on... Um, uh, I was going to say weightlifting. Is it? Weightlifting? Yeah, it's body, it was bodybuilding. Bodybuilding. That was the first bodybuilding, book yeah. I did. Yeah, yeah, about right. bodybuilders. Yeah, and you know, you write about all sorts of different things. Do you think you'd be? 
it's a hard question to answer, but do you think you'd be worse at cricket if you only wrote about cricket? Do you know what yeah, I, mean? I think, yeah, no, I really do think so. But I think, I obviously, I, I don't just have to depend on cricket. Um, yeah. And it's more difficult when you do, um, I think. And that, yeah, it, it can become very kind of tunnel vision. You know, you get very caught up in those, did I get this story? Did I get that story? You know, what is my opinion about Justin Langer? Whereas, yeah. where, you know, <laughs> I could, if, you, if you're not doing it full time, you can afford not to have an opinion. You know, it really doesn't, you know, it doesn't, deviate my transom i don't have to worry about it you know so i suppose that's a bit of a luxury that a lot of people um don't really have uh but uh, but yeah no i would uh, and it's interesting I, I was going to ask you um because now obviously you write a lot about football as well and i wonder if that has contextualized cricket for you because obviously yeah certainly in in the uk football is you know cricket times you know 100 or whatever it is mm. Uh, well, do you, you know, is is the echo chamber a thousand times louder every time you write about, you know, Harry Kane or something? Yeah, definitely. Um, although it's interesting because I think one of the, you know, in the first few months while I was I was doing football for the Independent, I was trying to do an impression of a football writer. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and my editor, my editor Ben Burrows, is has always been very good with me, and he was like, just like, just write it how you would write it he's like i know that's unsimple but yeah. you know there were plenty of other football writers to pick for this job and there's a reason we picked you so don't worry about it um so yeah there's there's definitely a bit of that in, in terms of contextualizing cricket i think i, I think it, re- it actually hammered home the need for i think for an, for a younger generation of, of cricket writer to come through because the one thing I noticed in football is that there are so many, there's so many more younger writers in football who are who are doing paid gigs at various different organisations. You know, um, covering a lot of football in London, you've got um, the Football London website, which which covers all the London teams as you'd expect, and they have, you know, a stable of writers for each club, more so for um, Premier League clubs, obviously, and they are kind of working around the clock but they're getting paid to work around the clock and there yeah there seems a lot more opportunities to get into the industry whereas you know without like to be fair the reason i got my job was you know it was the far end of a of a series of events that essentially started with the athletic coming along plucking up a load of football writers creating a vacancy at the Guardian, where Jonathan Liu, who was originally the sport, chief sports writer for the Independent, Independent, moving over to the Guardian, and it happened to tie in with the summer of 2019, where I was I was just writing a lot, really. So it was yeah. the Ashes and and the World Cup, where cricket was a you know so much more important. And then it just so happened that I knew my editor from a previous stint at the Mirror way back when, and yeah, like you know so that's what it took for me to get this job it was you know i i don't want to be flippant here but you know i i I think i'm a good writer but i don't think in a in a normal quote-unquote world or a normal set of circumstances i don't think i'm I'm in line for that job probably okay really um but i I think it's uh, but then you know life happens and and things present themselves in different ways so maybe i am being a bit too flippant about it but yeah I, i think it, there was that kind of circumstance with it in cricket. And, and bear in mind as well, like, I'm not the independent cricket writer. I'm their mm. sports feature writer, so I have to do football. I have to do other sports. And because of my history in cricket is 
the reason I do so much cricket. Um, and that it's one of the few sports that seems to be barreling through this pandemic at breakneck yeah. speeds. <laughs> well, it's, uh, yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. I mean, I suppose the the other kind of uh, great shift in in society over the last couple of years is, uh, I mean, it has this horrible name of wokedom. You know, are you woke or whatever? But this kind of, you know, there's there's a new generation of of opinion about things coming through. Things are without meaning to pun. Things are, are far less binary in in many ways, and there's an awareness of of you know maybe an over awareness of of uh, of other people's opinions, feelings, cultures, backgrounds, sexuality, all of those things. Do you generally thrive in that? Do you do you find that empowering, or or are you the other way? Do you think you know there are things that you now can't write that you would want to write? I don't know. Like speaking as a British Asian, I found it quite empowering because I, th- I think it's nice to know that there are certain things that can be discussed now and that can be written about, and that it feels like less of a risk to to fight a fight. I think that's probably the best way of saying it. Right. Yeah. Because oh, I think sometimes yeah. Yeah. Um, I think I wrote about this last year, actually, last, at the end of last summer. I think sometimes, specifically in, in cricket. See, maybe, maybe that's a bit of a, maybe just society in general actually sometimes you'd often feel that if you are the victim of 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 certain kind of you certainly the, the abuse I, I think you're alluding to that you you keep your head down and and i think that was that might have been the same when it comes to reporting it as well i think i think in the past um the way certain abuses have been written about have largely been dependent on the on the victim for example, if the victim was high profile, yeah, yeah. for example, you know, George Isabel's work with Azim Rafiq, you know, I, I think would people care about, uh, you know, an unattached cricketer or footballer in a, um, you know, it, without being in this particular environment? I'd like to think so, but probably not. Um, it just so happened yeah, that, yeah. you know, while the sport was going through this awakening, someone had a story to tell and quite a harrowing story to tell. Um, and so, yeah, so in that regard, I think it's, I think it's empowering. And I think it's not, I don't think, I don't think I'm or anyone of those kind of minorities or backgrounds are the only ones empowered by it. I think a lot of other people, a lot of people who are unaffected by these issues directly now probably feel that they can go into something with a bit more confidence. You know, there was a... There was an NFL writer yeah. who, who mentioned about how actually, you know, it's all great lauding these athletes, but we don't need allies, we need accomplices. And I think more and more people feel that they can be accomplices without thinking that they're stepping into someone else's lane. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Do you find any of that reflected back from the players as well? Because obviously they're of the, you know, as you mentioned, you're, you're still of the, the age and the generation where you're the same age as the players. Yeah, I think so. I think so. You know, we're because of I suppose we're going back um, to the beginning here, but because of social media, I think more people are aware of what's this kind of stuff that's that's going on and what these kind of movements are. I think you could you could be a sportsman ten years ago and live pretty comfortably independently from that. Even even as a, a test cricketer, where you're you know you're well paid and you're on tours and you're you know, going to some of the most exotic places in the world, you can, it's quite easy to ignore a lot of that stuff or, or certainly kind of not to pay too much attention to it. Um, so 
I don't don't know if I could tell this story, but um, I, I, I think I, I think I will. I'll just leave out some some of the important bits. But I just remember when. Um, do you remember when Mo and Ellie wore that uh, oh, the, Save Gaza bracelet? Yeah, I do, yeah, Southampton. Uh, and um, a cricketer asked, um, who's Gaza? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, okay. And, and you know, I don't think that, I don't think you'd be able to do that now. <laughs> Certainly without being, you know, having your head checked. But, you know, that was, yeah. <laughs> that was... Um, an understandable ignorance, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, and on the flip side of that, I mean, I'm, I'm just as you were, as you were speaking, I was thinking. Yeah, we mentioned Joffre earlier. Well, you know that whole debate we had about when you know when he wasn't quite bowling ninety miles an hour in every spell. You know, suddenly there was this awareness that there was this kind of massively lazy cultural stereotyping going on in the reporting of Joffre, in the way that there wasn't about Mark Wood or, you know, whoever else you want to pick. And so it's still there, isn't it? It still needs calling out when it when you see it. Yeah, no, it's, it absolutely does. And then the other thing to that is that um, I, I don't think Joffre or, you know, any other modern cricketer is helped by cricket's um, nostalgia problem. Um, you know, it, it, and and being a fast bowler in particular, um, especially one of Caribbean descent, you know, there's there are so many bowlers that he's compared to, um, and you know, even I, I could talk about this all day, but you know, the way that hundred meter times and every other kind of strength and endurance, uh, you know, measure was shot through the roof, while apparently you know bowlers were faster in the eighties. You know, even, yeah, yeah. Um, but but because of that, you know, we only remember the faster spells, and we think, well, Joffrey, why do you, why can't you bowl like you did to Steve Smith at Lords all the time? You know, um, and but yeah, and with that comes, I suppose, the language of, of how we talk about body language, for example, and and how we, um, you know, that perceived laziness and how that's talked of. I think we. Yeah, it's definitely so. You know, the the football, the big one is it's always pace and power with black players, but never you know intelligence of pass or something like that. Yahya Toure being a great example of 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 you know that particular conversation and how misguided it can be. So yeah, I, I think more and more people are are aware of it, and also I think importantly because of Twitter, more and more people get called out for it. Sometimes unfairly, I should say, but but often you know that's you know it's the um, John Ronson's book, um, So You've Been Publicly Shamed, about yeah. how, you know, the public shamings have, have just moved online. Um, and I think at their worst, it, it can be like that. But, but you know, sometimes it can give you quite a good steer on, on how to write about things. Particularly, I think, you know, something that cricket's going to come across in the next year or two years ago, or, two, or in next year or two years' time, having had a, a brief um, flash with it, in the last year, but it's, it's the trans issue really and how we report about that and where we need, where, you know, the information that we need to take on for that, because everyone is coming from that particular topic from a position of ignorance really. And, and I think it's probably our duty to make sure that we we're fully brushed up on that kind of stuff. Yeah. Well, I mean, I suppose it's the one genuinely kind of terrifying topic for many people. Yes. Yeah. Because yeah. well. it, it sort of questions everything. Uh, um, I mean, as a final thought and and again this is something that occurred to me 
uh, when you were speaking just then. But um, to sort of put it in the terms of one of your great loves, David Brent, uh, <laughs> when you know when he announces his favourite actor is Sidney Poitier, um, uh, in, <laughs> because he's so desperate not to offend uh, you know the black guys in the office, but in doing so, completely. Have you encountered through your professional life that kind of? resistance or you know Vish you should know about this because your family's Sri Lankan or you should know this because you're British Asian have you have you encountered that yourself yeah yeah quite a lot actually yeah um (laughs) (laughs) unsurprisingly yeah Yeah, and like some of it I can understand because I think people assume like I actually came to the game quite late I it was the 96 World Cup um the you know the one that Sri Lanka won and we were listening to it on the radio and and that was great but up until that point you know so I I was 10 at the time when I listened to that I I played a little bit of cricket at school but even that it was assumed that I'd be I'd be good at it um you know because I was because I was (laughs) Sri Lankan so you know I was kind of given a go and and quite enjoyed it we we all played cricket at school and I, I was okay at it so kept going but even then like people talk to me about like being Sri Lankan and I like, and I was I was kind of going through a phase of myself where I wasn't really sure like I wanted to fit in and so I wasn't really sure if embracing a difference was a good way of fitting in you know yeah. um and so I, I think that kind of manifested itself later on in life when I kind of you know because I wasn't around too many Sri Lankan people I became more anglicized and um yeah, like, you know, I don't speak Tamil particularly well, for example. Um, I don't speak any Sinhalese. Uh, and then, and yeah, so like loads of people would assume I was into it when I started because, you know, they'd assume I'd be hot on Sri Lanka. And that actually fueled yeah, me more yeah. to go the other way, to be as kind of ingrained in <laughs> the English side of cricket than the other side. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. But yeah, so, um, yeah, it, it can be quite annoying, but I think I... I but you know now i suppose now in the role that i'm in i have more of an excuse to be or rather more of a reason to be across everything as it were so i can you know i can take that on the chin a bit more the night watchman podcast is brought to you by rathbones investment management for individuals charities and financial advisors We couldn't do it without them. So please head over to rathbones.com to find out more about what they do. It's seductively easy to see cricket as its own self-contained universe, separate from the outside world. Playing or watching the game can be an escape, a refuge where other concerns slip away. As a writer and as a reader, I've certainly been guilty of that. There's a very traditional male gaze that lies deep in the heart of cricket, whether that's in the language of the game or in attitudes to and about it. But cricket must reckon with both its past and with the future. One of the very best writers on the game since she began in 1996 is Tanya Aldred, a familiar voice for followers of The Guardian's online coverage, an editor at The Night Watchman, and someone whose work has been published across the world. In recent years, Tanya's produced some of her most compelling and important writing for Wisden Almanac, in particular her coverage of sexism in the press box, cricket and its impact on the environment, and a piece on transgender players in the women's game. Tanya, I want to talk a bit about your early experiences as a writer in those 
press boxes. But first, I wondered if you felt cricket was yet to have its Me Too moment. I suppose we've had Chris Gale's car crash interview with Mel McLaughlin that time, but that really didn't seem to have any far-reaching consequences. And I wondered if you thought that was something that's still yet to come in the game. Mm, Gosh, that's a question. Um, I think there are things that have been bubbling under for a while. Um, I wrote in the the wisdom piece about someone who'd um, had a very bad experience in a a press box in Australia. And there was a a couple of years ago an incident where a a very well-known writer um, was exposed for harassing um, a young a young girl um, yeah. in quite a quite a horrible way, actually, um, and that was a kind of a Me Too moment, I think, um, for journalists over there. But it is a it's an ongoing battle because it has been such a male environment, and these things take a long time to change. Yeah, they really do, don't they? Because I mean, you know, I was surprised when we were uh, doing the introduction you said you started in 1996 Mm. and yet uh, it's only really now that people are starting to address who it is that talks and writes about the game and what what positions there are available for people to do that Um, it's a long time isn't it to really for us to still be talking about that yeah it's I think it's just because because um I mean, it's not just with with uh, uh, writers and broadcasters. You know, f- female cricketers were also ignored for such a long time. Yeah. And covering the women's game was seen as the booby prize, really. And I've got to admit that <laughs> I was I was guilty of that myself because I was kind of quite often given women's cricket to cover. And I was like, well, I, I don't want to cover this. This isn't the, um, <laughs> the you know, this stuff. no one else wants to do this. What, you know, why am why am I being given this to do in that that kind of almost like an automatic reaction that you didn't want to be pigeonholed. Um, and I think that has really changed now because you've got lots of the, the younger um, journalists coming through who really enjoy covering the, the women's game and see it on an equal, as an equal, um, you know, equally a privilege to covering the male game. And I think that's been, I've been really pleased to see that. It's felt like a, a huge breakthrough and something that's perhaps... Um, changed more within the the broadcasters and journalists as it has um, within cricket as it's within sort of um, uh, male cricketers themselves. If you think about the kind of recent Rory Burns uh, tweet. Yes, yeah, yeah. And uh, do you think we've got to a point with the women's game? Where, uh, and I mean, I guess this will be the, the real um, mark of... of when it's completely written about in the same way as the men's game, where we can be critical of it and I say, you know, oh, no, actually, that was a terrible game. <laughs> you know, everyone played really, but it doesn't seem to be, that doesn't seem to be there yet in the way it is in the men's game. No, I think that's true. And uh, I've read a really interesting piece by Raf Nicholson about this, and she writes almost exclusively about the women's game. Um yeah saying that kind of people are almost a bit scared to be on it to sort of be critical um because they don't want to get it wrong and they yeah, don't want to be accused yeah. of 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 sexism but I think you're right when when people do feel free to criticize and I think that will come as um the game becomes more professional which obviously it is doing um 
and people have more opportunity to practice and they're not having to hold down two jobs and things like that, yeah. then you are going to be more able to judge it on that kind of scale. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, going back to your early days as a cricket writer, and you did write brilliantly about this in in the Almanac, uh, it, w- those those press boxes that were, I suppose at the time you were coming along, almost exclusively a male preserve, and there were guys who'd been in there for years and years, and, um, you know, the, it, it just operated in a very particular way. What was that like for you? Did you find that um, daunting to go and do that? And what drove you on in those early years? Well, yeah, I found it absolutely terrifying. <laughs> I would quite often hide behind the door of a press box, kind of, you know, taking three deep breaths and trying to give myself the the courage to to push open a door um, and walk in. Um, And that's not because everyone was horrible, which they weren't at all. It was just the the intimidating nature of being someone sort of so obviously different. Um, And also in those days, you had to phone your copy in to copy takers so that was horrendous (laughs) (laughs) so you were sitting in a press box with everyone listening sort of reading this coffee dreadful copy out and you knew that you'd made probably made loads of awful mistakes so yeah no I found it god knows why I carried on doing it I found it really stressful and and intimidating but you kind of just carry on because I don't know you're sort of started so you just want to see what's going to happen I suppose. <laughs> yeah yeah I mean but how did you set about finding a voice for yourself because as you say you didn't want to write in the same way that you know I, I suppose you know Matthew Engel was writing at the time or Mike Selvey or any of those guys um, you, you wanted to establish an identity of your own I wondered how you went about doing that. Um, I don't know if it was something that I actually it, I don't, God, I don't know if it was something that I actually tried to do. Um, our editor, Tim, Tim Delisle, had taken over Wisdom Cricket Monthly when I started. Um, and he's an absolutely amazing editor. And I feel so lucky to have had him as my kind of first boss. Yeah. So he was very much encouraging us to try and write um, authentically, I suppose. So you were talking with your own voice and not that of anyone else's. Um, I... I suppose I, in a way I couldn't write like lots of other people yeah, because I hadn't yeah. had, I've, um, I hadn't really ever, I mean, I've played with my, on the beach and in the garden with my brothers, but I'd never played at any kind of high level at all. So my knowledge of the game um, was really different. I suppose my knowledge of the game was that of a spectator who loved it, but not yeah. as someone who had a, a really deep technical knowledge and I mean that's still the case today my I I just don't see stuff that you know if you're watching Sky you know Nasser Sane or something will pick something out that I would just never have spotted <laughs> yeah. um, and that's the nice thing about sitting in the press box is you you sit next to people who will be who will help explain this stuff to you and you then do get a different vision but I suppose that's it made it easy to not try and copy somebody else because I couldn't and it would be you know I'd soon be found out because then I didn't have that deep technical knowledge 
Yeah, yeah. I, I, I mentioned in the intro that notion of the sort of the male gaze, the traditional male gaze in cricket. Mm. It was a sport that's always been seen through that sort of white male lens. Yeah. And the language of the game completely reflects that to the point where, you know, I, I noticed last month uh, ESPN moved over from calling b- batsmen. They're now going to always refer to them as batters. Mm. And it's a small change, but it's a big change in many ways. Um, that kind of embedded language in the game and that very male way of looking at the game was that something you were really conscious of um I don't know um I suppose I was conscious that I was looking at the game in a different way but I don't know if I and I think I was very conscious of it when men were talking about women and women's sport yeah um but I'm not sure if I was something that I was conscious of when I was watching men's sport particularly um, because I felt I felt um, a bit alone anyway because I was a woman I suppose in a very male box I, it's hard to to discriminate between what's the male gaze on cricket and what's just the differences between being a man and a woman yeah yeah if that makes sense no it does yeah I um, said so when do you feel that that kind of started to broaden out I tend to think that um it's, you, know, you do a lot of work on the Guardian's um, over by over stuff. And that kind of has this brilliant voice where it's quite colloquial. It's very open. You've got people emailing in all the time. And all of a sudden, the voice seemed to change a little bit when that kind of thing came along. Is that something you've been aware of? Yeah, I think things changed. I noticed a real change. So I had my first child in 2000 and. Yeah, that's right. Um, I had my daughter in 2004 and I then stopped um, the kind of cricket merry-go-round. I haven't toured since then and I didn't do really any county coverage. I didn't really do much sort of work out of home until I then covered the 2012 Olympics. So that was quite a long time where I was mostly doing just pieces, you know, thought pieces or columns or editing or things like that from home. And when I came back, I can't remember when I started doing cricket really again. It was probably, I don't know, 2016 or something. So it was quite, I had quite a long gap when I was out of press boxes and I did feel like there'd been a big change when I came back because there were, Lots of the old guard had moved on. Uh, there were lots of younger people. There were women. Um, and like you say, there was almost a democratization of it with the internet and yeah. having responses, you know, having um, responses to articles and, um, uh, yeah, like the over by over coverage and things like that. So I think it probably happened quite gradually. But to me, when I came back, I noticed yeah. a big change. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you mentioned touring there, which is a whole other thing. Um, mm. What were the what were your experiences of that like? Um, sort of mixed. Amazing to go somewhere completely different. Such a fantastic opportunity to you know be touring Zimbabwe or touring. India and you, you can't believe really that you're being paid to go go to these places <laughs> yeah um they could be a bit lonely um as well because often again you were quite there weren't that many women there um and it was a real I remember doing the world cup in South Africa in 2003 and I kind of I 
I was actually on my 30th birthday, I met up with <laughs> Sharda Ugra and um, uh, Niru. Um, and uh, the three of us went out for pizza together and just had a really nice a really nice time and it was lovely to just be with female company so I think it that was a a bit lonely and the other thing was is that or there used to be a lot of drinking that went on and I'm just I'm not very good at holding my drink yeah yeah. Yeah. (laughs) so you're kind of if that was the main socializing you know I I got burnt a few times by trying to trying to sort of drink at the same level as as the as the guys and not being able to so i think that again it comes with with age and confidences is just like oh yeah right yes. actually it's not a very good idea for me to drink a bottle of wine it's just yeah, not yeah 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 um we, well i kind of touched on also in the introduction the this work you've been doing for the almanac over the past few years and i think you know under lawrence's editorship it has been a uh um a book that has really broadened its its vista over the mm. last few years but did you when you when you wrote i mean there was the, the yeah the, the piece you wrote about sexism and also the piece you wrote about the transgender player um a yeah. couple of years ago when you write stuff like that i mean we all know uh you know the the internet is it can can have its dark side and you kind of know you're opening yourself up to that when you delve into those subjects did you sort of feel you were taking your life in your hands a bit when you when you started to write about those things um a little bit yeah I, I did feel a bit nervous about it um but Lawrence has always been I mean he, he Lawrence is actually a good friend of mine as well but as well as being a, a brilliant editor but he was very supportive and he was always kind of you know we've got your back we'll you know these things are important they need to, you know the almanac is a is a book of record and we need to um we need to have written down how you know how things are and what, what these important issues are so I I felt okay about it I felt more worried about writing the trans piece because it does seem to be an issue where um debate is very difficult to be had or or um debate is very difficult to be had in a well in a measured way isn't it I in mean, a measured it way just, yes. it just becomes instantly polarized it's especially on twitter which i know isn't a kind of reflection of, of life but there's just this instant polarization of that issue um you don't seem to be able to say anything about it with either one side or the other screaming at you no i know and it, it's it's something that that needs discussion as well because you need to Otherwise, what you have is you, if you have bad policy, which is quite often what you end up with in, in these kinds of arguments, because there is no debate, then the people who actually lose out are the, well, you, the people who can become the victims of it are the trans players themselves, because they are abiding by the rules of whichever the ECB or whichever governing body it is. Um, and you can't expect people not to abide by the rules, but people would obviously get can become very frustrated by them and think that they're not fair and that doesn't work out very well for anybody yeah yeah i mean it's an incredibly difficult subject but they're, they're, i mean i suppose you know in in the general debate about transgender issues cricket isn't that important there's no one kind of standing around going well you know let's think about how this impacts cricket so that's a kind of another measure you had to take in really in writing about okay here's this person who has has um, been through this experience is now playing in the women's game but 
how important is that? It's a kind of difficult thing to weigh up, isn't it? Yeah, in one way, it's a real statement. But in other ways, cricket isn't that important in the general run of things. Um, so I wonder how you kind of balance that as well. Um, well, Ma- Maxine Blythin, um, in a way, she was not a, almost a red herring because her her or she says that she never went through a male um male puberty herself so male puberty is the thing that almost supercharges male athletic ability so until the ages of you know most primary school age um sport can pretty much be mixed um the only things that are holding girls back are perhaps so social things like boys taking up too much space on the playground playing football that kind of thing and that tends to be why primary schools have if they do have single sex teams that's why because otherwise girls can just get left out um once you hit puberty you then do get the kind of supercharging of 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 male athletic ability um which leaves women for dead really which is why if you look at all the olympic records the men are out of sight really um And I suppose what you have to do when you're looking at cricket is you might think, well, it's not a contact sport, which are the ones which I think people get very concerned with, with um, the inclusion of trans women. Uh, You know, it's not boxing and it's not a power sport like weightlifting, which has also been in the news this week. Um, But you do still get the advantages of male puberty, which is strength, speed. I mean, which is why actually the women play with smaller balls and with smaller boundaries and you know so you've got the the maximum speed for a I think the fastest woman's about 80 miles yeah. an hour and then you've yeah, got show back to our bowling at 100 so that's yeah. you know there's got a huge yeah. difference yeah. there 20 percent difference yeah. yeah yeah um I can't remember if that's actually answered your question now well no it has it that, that's really <laughs> that, that is very interesting because I suppose we were talking about setting yeah the cricket issue in the context of, oh, yeah. of the wider issue and that you know that does that very well that pretty much is what it is um but again it comes down to that separation between the two games I think doesn't it you know it's almost like we're saying that they should be, to, to my mind, I suppose they should be different games written yeah. about entirely differently because um, they are different games. It's not as if, you know, and, and I suppose when you get this crossing point, i.e. someone who might have played in both, um, it then becomes a very convoluted issue indeed. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, it, I, I think you need to look, I think a way of looking at it is to look at tennis, which is one of those sports where women's, tennis as a girl women's tennis was one sort of the one sport which people would sit and watch on tv i I don't think i can't remember any other sport or maybe some athletics at the olympics that that i would sit down with my brothers and watch the the women's final um from wimbledon and people have been able to now judge um serena williams as an amazing athlete. I think yeah, Roger Federer has yeah. called her one of the greatest tennis players ever, yeah. you know, male or female. And when he's saying that, he's not meaning that she could beat him, but she couldn't, you know, she probably couldn't beat the top 200 yeah, male tennis right. players. Yeah. But yeah, what, what yeah. he means is within her game, she's the almost perfect, yeah. perfect tennis player. And I think it's important to be able to judge you can see that the two games are both cricket, but you're judging them within their own sphere. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, as, a, as a final question, it's a little bit about your own writing. Um, do you, when you kind of, you've addressed those issues and you, but is it something that you, you kind of want to avoid being known for? Because you, do, you don't want to sort of become the person that writes that, you know, just about that, I suppose. It's pigeonholing again, isn't it, that, that you know, can happen in these instances. Whereas actually, you know, as you say, you've written about all aspects of the game throughout your career. And I wonder how you keep that broad portfolio going when people might read something you've written on transgender and something on sexism or the environment and go, oh, well, hang on, I'll get Tanya to do that because she's um, the one who does that you know so obviously you know i suppose you you always want to write about everything don't you as a writer yeah right uh, i think because partly it's driven by the fact that i'm freelance so yeah. you just you just do anything <laughs> <laughs> yeah you're up for hire yeah, no so you yeah. in a in a way kind of having a writing about the environment or something like that that's what i'm really interested in that and I don't mind being always asked to do to write things about that. That's good. Um, but I think beca- because I'm freelance, also I've I've always had my fingers in, you know, lots of lots of different pots from necessity, really. So I've got Guardian mm. work, I've got the Night Watchman, you know, bits of editing. I do bits of teaching, and I I really enjoy that. And I I I don't think I could do the the correspondence jobs. Because it's yeah. so it's so intense, and you don't get a break. Um, I've I was um, uh, you know Ali Martin's just been made the the Guardian's number one, um, and it's just such an intense job. You have to try and be on top of everything. And once upon a time, being on, t- on top of everything meant being on top of men's cricket yeah. in England, and you know men's Test cricket, yeah. and perhaps a county championship. Yeah. But now your gaze has got to be so broad; it's it's an impossible job, really, to be on top of sort of IPL, yeah, championship, T Twenty, yeah. women's game, disability cricket. It's it's just impossible. Tanya, that's fantastic. Thanks ever so much. Our thanks go to Vish and to Tanya uh, for talking about writing, which isn't always the easiest thing to do. If you want their writing, you can find Vish in The Independent and you can find Tanya in The Guardian and at The Night Watchman. And after we recorded, Tanya asked me to point out that if it wasn't clear when she was speaking that when she did come up, she was part of a little collective of female writers in the game who were all very supportive to one another Uh, so very happy to point that out as well and thanks to you for listening if you've enjoyed it then do spread the word and if you're feeling especially kind then why not leave us a review on your podcast app to find out more about the night watchman visit www.thenightwatchman.net the night watchman podcast is written and hosted by john hotton produced and edited by james wallace